Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hales. I'm here today with Eric Huntsman. Can you tell us a little about your education and your research, Eric? Sure. Thank you, Laura, for having me. My name is Eric Huntsman, and I'm a professor of ancient scripture at BYU. I actually started out at BYU as an undergraduate in 1983 as a chemistry pre-med major. That didn't go very well. And so I changed to a double major in classical Greek and Latin. Graduated in 1990 and then went to the University of Pennsylvania, where I earned my master's and my PhD in ancient history. By training, I'm actually a Greek and Roman historian. And so when I took my BYU job in 1994, I actually was in classics in the College of Humanities. So I taught classics in Greek and Roman history for nine years, from 1994 to 2003, when I transferred to religious education. So I have been teaching ancient scripture since 2003, primarily focusing on the New Testament. In 2011, my family and I went to Jerusalem for a one-year teaching assignment at the BYU Jerusalem Center, and I came back really interested in the whole Bible and started doing some work in Hebrew and Jewish studies, and so I have been coordinating the Ancient Eastern Studies program in the Kennedy Center since my return in 2012. Some members of the church, I'm not going to name names, may struggle with the New Testament because they wonder about its modern-day relevance. You mentioned three lenses that academics look through when studying a text. What are those lenses? So, one of the things I've always incorporated in my teaching since I moved to religious education in 2003 is what we call exegetical method. And so, the idea is to the extent possible that we can reconstruct or try to gauge the original meaning of the text, the original audience, that's what we're trying to do. What I tell my students is the them, there, then message. You know, as Latter-day Saints, and I think believers of any tradition, you know, we want to see how Scripture is relevant to us, and so it's always, what does this mean to us here now? And so I would always tell my students, try to understand the them there then, so you can more correctly or accurately apply it to us here now, right? So you get the basic principles as far as you can reconstruct it, and that can guide then your application. With the New Testament text, and here I'm talking primarily about the Gospels, because the original audience for the Pauline letters is the original audience he was writing for. But with the Gospels, it's interesting because we have later authors, you know, if Mark's written in the 60s, Matthew and Luke in the the 70s, early 80s, if John itself was written in the 90s, you have these authors after the fact trying to recreate the experiences people had encountering Jesus during his ministry. So that's the first lens. You know, I talk in the introduction about the text being a window into that earlier world. But then the second lens is what did that portrayal of Jesus' ministry and his interactions with people, what did that mean to the original reading audience, which in the case of the Gospels is 30 to 60 years after the events that they are trying to paint. Uh, So there are those two different levels, and this is particularly strong in the Gospel of John. I don't do a lot of this in, in this particular book, but as I'm working now more intently on my commentary, the original audience of the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, they were having very different experiences than the initial Jewish followers of Jesus in the Holy Land were having. There is the experience of the man born blind, whom Jesus heals miraculously, 
And then he and his parents are taken before the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, and they're basically told to, you know, reject Jesus or be put out of the synagogue. Now, that term aposunagos in Greek is not attested in the Second Temple period at the time that Jesus was encountering that blind man. But in the 80s and 90s, this is after the destruction of Jerusalem as rabbinic Judaism is starting to kind of coalesce, we know that some Christian Jews were being put out of the synagogue. That's the first lens. The question is, would the first readers of the fourth gospel, when they saw that term be put out of the synagogue, would they immediately have related that to their own experience as they were being expelled from the synagogue, say, in the 90s? So, so it's actually a very dicey thing when you get into detailed analysis of the gospels in particular. But back to your original question, you know, trying to find the relevance for, for modern readers. You know, in a gospel doctrine class, or often even in my religion classes at BYU, I don't go into that level of detail. But what I'm trying to do in this book is take the historical figures that are at the root of the stories in the fourth gospel and talk about how they are portrayed as literary characters. And that's the point of contact for us, because Nicodemus is more, I would suggest, than just a leader of the Jews at the time of Jesus. He represents a particular kind of disciple. If you can see that typology, it's really a lot easier to make a connection with someone who has that temperament or that approach to seeking truth and understanding truth today. You talked about how did it apply in the lives of them when it was written, This book to me seemed to be for the us. How does it apply to us? So what are the major themes in the Gospel of John as you're looking through that third lens? Obviously, the first theme is the one that's introduced in the first half of the first chapter. This is often called the Logos Hymn. It's this poetic composition laying out Jesus as the divine word, the word that was made flesh. And that's where my writing up to this point and my teaching up to this point is always focused on the Gospel of John. What does the Gospel of John teach us, the readers in any age, about Christology, the work of Jesus? What does it mean when we say he's the divine Son of God or God made flesh? What has he done for us? What does it mean that he died on the cross for us, that he rose from the dead for us? But in the second half of the first chapter, we have this I call it this great chain of witnesses. You have John the Baptist, who in this gospel is presented more as a prophet. He proclaims to Andrew and another one of John's own disciples, behold the Lamb of God, which gets them to approach Jesus and say, Lord, where stayest thou? And he says, come and see. And then you see Andrew and this other disciple leave their earlier affiliation with the prophet John and follow Jesus. And then Andrew gets his brother Peter Peter gets their friend Philip, Philip gets his friend Nathaniel, and so we see how people come to Christ often through the witness or the evangelization of others. And that's actually what clued me into this particular book was, can we look at the different ways people come to Christ today? I think Latter-day Saints are very used to that kind of approach Mm -hmm. because that's about 100% what gospel doctrine classes. But this book is different in the way you go about it. It's back to that matter of exegesis that I mentioned before. And so even though each chapter has a two- or three-page application section at the end of it, the bulk of the chapter, two-thirds, three-quarters of it, is what we would call explication of the text. And so I'm trying to come up with the application by very carefully looking at the scenes in the gospel 
in not just their historical context, but their literary context. You mentioned proof texting. You know what we often do, for instance, in the Nicodemus chapters, the very famous verses in John 3.3 and John 3.5 about being born again and also being born of water and the Spirit, which we always immediately default to being, you know, water baptism and, and the baptism by the Spirit through confirmation. Certainly very valid applications of those verses, but what I always do with my students in class is I say, you need to know what comes before and after the passage you're discussing so that you have its proper literary and doctrinal context. I'm dealing with whole chapters before I do the application rather than isolated verses. Before we get further into the characters and the stories that John uses to teach us about discipleship, I want you to comment on an observation you make in the book. You say John, even more than the other Gospels, frequently used historical figures as literary characters. Can you speak to that and why the method is effective? So, this is drawn from an observation many scholars have made. In fact, some people, and I'm quite interested in this, have looked at the Gospel of John almost as a drama. Now, to be sure, the Gospel of Mark, the earliest and the shortest of the Gospels, there's been a lot done with performance theory with Mark. We think that Mark was read aloud in a single sitting sometimes in early Christian communities. So, they all have that kind of dramatic aspect. But the characters in the Gospel of John are so much more developed. If you were to look at the Gospel of Mark, the only other character that really jumps out as developed besides Jesus himself is Peter. In John, you have these characters, sometimes very minor characters, sometimes unnamed characters, such as the man healed at the Pool of Bethesda or the man born blind, who receive more characterization and more play, literally more airtime than characters ever would in the Synoptic Gospels. But what's interesting to me, and where the idea of approaching these characters typologically really struck me, was not with the characters such as Nicodemus who are named, but it's the characters who are unnamed. So we'll talk more, I'm sure, about the figure of the beloved disciple himself in the final chapters of John. But the beloved disciple, traditionally always assumed to be the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, is never named. The man born blind, never named. The man at the pool of Bethesda, never named. Some of the major characters whom I focus on, such as the woman of Samaria, never named. What the anonymity does, oh, by the way, the mother of Jesus, never named. In fact, I was pretty careful usually not to call her Mary in my book because the fourth evangelist, the author of the Gospel of John, never does. What this does is it allows these characters to be bigger than the historical figures upon whom they're based. So, for instance, if the mother of Jesus was named Mary and the beloved disciple was named John, it would be pretty easy for us to assume those were the experiences simply of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John, the disciple. But because they're not named, that gives a little bit more distance between the historical figure upon which the characters are based and the literary characters themselves. And so, the reader is able to associate herself or himself with these characters. That was probably the favorite part of your book for me. The biggest aha moment was, wow, he's doing this so that we can put ourselves inside these characters. Yeah, yeah. So, when you mentioned earlier that some Latter-day Saints in Sunday school other contexts have a hard time relating to the New Testament, you know, you don't feel like you are one of the early Corinthian saints or a saint in Galatia rebelling against Paul. I actually think the fourth gospel, the Gospel of John, provides us in some ways a more easy entree into 
identifying ourselves or associating ourselves with the events of the New Testament because of this approach to characterization. It also takes you away from that historical accuracy and setting. There's places in the book where you go, don't worry about the details. We're not talking about details here. We're not going to analyze Yeah, this. yeah. You can see my commentary in a couple of years. But yeah. for now, I just want you... <laughs> we want to talk about the imagery. What is he trying to tell us here? Mm-hmm. That's what's important. You mentioned the beloved disciple earlier. How does he function as a narrator in the Gospel of John? You know, I'm glad you raised that because some scholars would say he doesn't. Okay, so once again, if you go with the traditional attribution of this gospel to John, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, then he's both the character of the beloved disciple, and he's the author of the gospel, and he's the narrator. Now, he can be all three, but they can be different, right? So, we can talk in a moment about why the, the figure of the beloved disciple, particularly in the latter chapters, is portrayed separately from the voice of the narrator. Um, But the narrator, and it is interesting in this sense, that the narrator is a more clearly discernible voice, I would suggest, in the Gospel of John than you have in the others. In the Synoptic Gospels, the narrator very rarely breaks in and says, let's talk about this. Let me point out something to you. One of the few examples I can think of in the Gospel of Mark right at the top of my head is in Mark 13, where Jesus is doing the great Mount of Olives discourse. At one point, it says, he who reads, let him understand. Now, that actually could be Jesus talking, which is interesting, because then maybe there's a book of Jesus somewhere we're going to find, but usually it's assumed it's the author of the Gospel of Mark. But the narrator in the Gospel of John pops up all the time. We don't always see this, because the way our King James Bibles are formatted, you don't see paragraph structure, you don't see quotations, but when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3, moving past the proof text about being born again or born from above and being born of water and the Spirit, you've got this wonderful discussion of a sign that Jesus promises Nicodemus, that when you see the Son of Man lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And then it's followed by two very well-known and beloved verses, verses 16 and 17. For God sent not his Son into the world, right? And because there's not a break in the the structure, the formatting of our printed Bibles, we assume that's still Jesus talking. And some scholars make that argument. But actually, more of them make the argument that this is the narrator reflecting on what Jesus has just said. And so this happens frequently throughout this gospel, that the, the narrator actually talks to us at the end of chapter 20, which is probably the original ending of the gospel. He lays out the theme of this gospel. You know, there's so many things written, uh, uh, so many signs that Jesus did that we couldn't get them in one book, but these are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing him you may have eternal life. That was probably the original ending. And that's the narrator talking to us. In the final ending of the book, in the epilogue, chapter 21, a later editor actually pops in and talks about the witness of this beloved disciple figure. It says, we know his testimony is true. And I don't think you get that in the other Gospels. Talking about that, you make me want to look at my NRSV and my Tom Wayman rendition mm-hmm, to see mm-hmm. how they treat this differently. One of the first disciples that John introduces us to is Simon, later known as Peter. How are names viewed in the ancient world, and what significance does that have in the case of Simon Peter? Well, that is an interesting question, because even if you were to go back to the Hebrew Bible, 
sometimes the characters in the text have these names which are so descriptive of the way the people later acted. Either they had to be prophetic, you know, baby blessings on the part of the parents who gave them those names. I'm thinking of the different children of oh, Leah and Rachel. Oh, you know? I think they were probably literary elements. I, I mean, when exactly. it falls into place so well, right. you always question. Right. Now, in Peter's case, of course, it's different because Jesus renames Peter, right? So Peter's given name would have been Shimon or Simon, as it's anglicized. And then, of course, in chapter 1, Jesus says, you will be called Kephas, or Petros in Greek. You will be Rocky. Your name will be Rocky. And, and it's interesting, because we all know that Peter becomes the, you know, after Jesus being the chief cornerstone of the apostles and prophets who are going to be the foundation of the church, particularly in the book of Acts on, Peter is the rock. Of course, both in the Gospel of Mark, which some would argue is based on the preaching of Peter, and in this later Gospel of John, Peter's almost anything but firm as a rock, right? And so it's almost what he can become rather than what he is when he's given the name. It is interesting in that first chain of witnesses, the prophet John, Andrew, the other disciple, Peter, then Philip, then Nathaniel. Peter actually stands apart from the others in that chapter, in that scene, because he doesn't make what we call a Christological confession. All the other ones come to see Jesus, and when Andrew comes and gets Peter, says, we found the Messiah. And then when Philip goes and gets Nathaniel, he says something similarly. And then Nathaniel, at the end of that chain, gives the most explicit Christological confession in the text, we have found the King of Israel the son of the living God. The only person who has a stronger and more accurate Christological confession, interestingly enough, is Martha in chapter 11. She has what we would almost call an apostolic confession of who Christ is. But Peter is kind of surprisingly void of that. He doesn't become a clearly drawn character till the Passion Narratives. And then, of course, it's within the context of the prophecy that he would deny knowing Jesus and the threefold denial. And of course, that he's not rehabilitated till chapter 21 when he does the threefold affirmation of love at the end of the gospel. So, to give insight into how you develop this theme of discipleship using Simon Peter and his renaming, you mentioned that instead of rendering Peter as rock solid. Or and, unhewn and, rock, right? So, roughly un- hewn rock, and he yeah. has to be polished. But the idea is chipped out of the of the bedrock, so to speak, at the beginning, and is very rough. Mm-hmm. And then his experiences, including his mistakes, polish him. And he is more of the finely hewn rock by the end of chapter 21. I mean, I can't help but, you know, make the association with Richard Bushman's title of his biography of Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling, right? Of course, this is all coming out of that vision of Daniel, of the rock hewn out of the mount without hands. And as it rolls, it smooths and then grows into what it's meant to be. Besides the obvious reason that we would like now, why do you think it's important to John's overall message to include the witness of women? Why was it important back in the first century? You know, all the Gospels share a almost revolutionary view of women. Even if you go back to the first, presumably first Gospel, Mark, the first people that get a witness that the tomb is empty and from the voice of the angel that Jesus raised from the dead are women. So, within a Jewish and Greek culture, women frequently were not admitted as witnesses in legal cases. 
and it's a little different in the Roman context. And so to have the first witnesses be women whose testimonies would not be admissible in court anyway is kind of striking. From all four Gospels, people who do historical Jesus studies, it becomes apparent that Jesus' view of women seems to be broader. He accepts them as disciples. And if you go back to that scene of you know Martha cooking and Mary at the feet of Jesus in Luke 10, you have Mary of Bethany portrayed as a disciple sitting at the feet of the master learning, which does not seem to have been the usual case. I often will tell students, if you want a feminist gospel, it's usually Luke. Luke has more women than anyone else, uh, any of the other gospels. Uh, in fact, Luke frequently put women in, and men in gender pairs, so that if you see if Jesus does one thing for a man, he does something similar for a woman. John doesn't have as many women as Luke does, but the women he has are much more developed. So starting with the mother of Jesus in chapter 2, where she's a major actor in what's going on at the wedding of Cana, and then certainly with the dialogue with the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, where a woman has a whole chapter. And then in chapter 20 of the resurrection appearance to Jesus to Mary Magdalene, a whole section of a chapter. And so it is interesting, besides the historical anomaly of women being witnesses when they weren't accepted as official witnesses in society and before the law, you simply have Jesus. Well, you know, it's interesting since you bring that up. I put the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene in the same chapter. And I'm kind of roughly moving through the story order in the book. So in chapter 2, the mother of Jesus and the wedding of Cana scene is the next one you see after the chain of witnesses in chapter 1. But after that wedding at Cana episode, the mother of Jesus appears again in John 19 at the foot of the cross, and Mary Magdalene's there. And then in chapter 20, Mary Magdalene's the first person to see and touch, as I point out, the risen Lord. But what's interesting about these two figures is you don't see how they get their own witness, So you see the chain of witnesses, someone hears the testimony of someone else, comes to Christ and comes to believe. You see the woman at Samaria dialoguing with Jesus, Nicodemus dialoguing with Jesus. They begin to get their testimonies from encountering him. The mother of Jesus comes on the scene, already knowing who her son is, trusting that he can work a miracle, that he'll take care of this problem at the wedding. Mary Magdalene's at the foot of the cross the first time she's introduced, obviously believing in Jesus, obviously loving him. And so you get this sense that you've got these people who are already witnesses of Jesus, but what their role in the text is, is that they share that witness and get other people to act. So it's the mother of Jesus who gets the servants to fill up the water pot so that Jesus can do that first miraculous sign, changing water into wine. It is Mary Magdalene who is sent by the risen Lord to the other disciples to get them to know that Jesus is raised from the dead. So it's not just that they're witnesses, they're women who act. The application section of that chapter is called, you know, learning from women who know, which I referenced from Julie Beck from when she was general president of the Relief Society. And although some people have, you know, mixed reactions to that overall sermon, I thought it was worth pointing out what Sister Beck, I think, powerfully pointed out to us is that when women who know testify, they can influence people for good. That's what Mother Jesus did. That's what Mary Magdalene did in that application section. I would I reference the women in my life, particularly my own mother. Uh, You know, there's that wonderful scene in the later letters attributed to Paul, to Timothy, where the character Paul says to Timothy, that faith which was first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice is now in you. So anyway, I, I was quite intent on pointing out that women were not only the earliest witnesses of Jesus, but they were also the earliest actors 
getting people to come to Christ. In fact, if I could bring the Samaritan woman in, she goes to her home village and says, I think I have found him. He told me everything I ever did. Is this not the Messiah? Is this not the Christ? And she is the first missionary in this gospel who brings a whole village to Jesus. You mentioned three Marys as witnesses in your book. Let's talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus. How is she a prime witness? Well, as I mentioned, she appears on the scene, in the text, as someone who already knows who Jesus is and what he can do. I often will point out in my broader teaching that after God the Father himself, who gives the strongest witness of his Son in the Synoptic Gospels, at the baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration, etc., the prime witness of Jesus Christ is not the Twelve, it's of his mother. Who better than his mother would know that he was divinely conceived and miraculously born? She bears this witness through her actions, through her confidence, her faith in her son, that her son can resolve the situation for the people at the wedding at Cana. But then she appears at the foot of the cross, a witness that her son died for the sins of the world. And so she's both, in terms of Christology, the person work of Jesus, she's the prime witness of who Jesus is, the Son of God, and she's a leading and important witness in what he came to do, that he came to die for us. Now, the Gospel of John lacks what we call an infancy narrative, Matthew 1 through 2, Luke 1 through 2. We don't have the story of the divine conception, miraculous birth. I have suggested in some of my earlier writings and in my speaking that actually the first miraculous sign, there are seven of these miraculous signs in John, as opposed to the 21 miracles in, in Matthew or Luke. This first miraculous sign I have suggested is actually a symbol of the Incarnation the divine conception, miraculous birth of Jesus. And that's because, uh, and I have to reference some other works, I don't have time to really develop this in this book, the symbolism of water and blood is pretty consistent throughout this text, that water almost always represents life, particularly eternal or everlasting life, it represents the power of the Spirit, it represents divinity, and blood, of course, we know is associated with flesh, flesh and blood, mortality. And so when you have this first miraculous sign where water is changed into wine, wine being a a type of blood, what I'm suggesting is that the divine word from chapter 1, which was spirit, which was God, becomes the man Jesus, flesh and blood. And the agency for that transformation, or the actress for that transformation, is the mother of Jesus. So her being present at the wedding of Cana when Jesus becomes actively working with his people. Uh, In fact, I talk about the symbolism of the wedding. Sometimes people get tied up in knots, including some of our early 19th century Latter-day Saint leaders. Who is the groom and who's the bride and what's going on at this wedding? And I think they're missing all the symbolism of that. Because in the Hebrew Bible, the covenant relationship between Yahweh, Jehovah, and his people is typified as a marriage. But it's almost like Joseph and Mary being espoused, legally married, but not yet come together in Matthew chapter 1, right? So you have this covenant relationship between Yahweh and his people, but it's never consummated. They never actually live together, particularly because the one party is always rebellious or not being faithful to that covenant marriage. But with the incarnation, with Jehovah becoming Jesus, this long-standing covenant relationship between God and his people is consummated. They are living together, like Joseph takes Mary into his own house. And so the beginning of Jesus's ministry in chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana represents this covenant relationship between Jehovah and his people, which is now consummated as they are taking up residence together. One of the tour guide things you do in this book is say... (laughs) 
Jesus refers to his mother as woman. Yeah. And right now we're like, that's not very respectful. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. Let's look at this closer. So let's look at it closer. Yeah, and I do it differently than you usually see it done. In the late 19th century, a lot of Victorian-era scholars, these were Anglican divines, when they were writing some of the early lives of Jesus, like for ours, Life of Christ, they wanted to see Jesus calling his mother woman as polite, kind of like saying, yes, ma'am, like I was always taught to do in the American South. But we actually have no evidence in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic of a son ever calling his mother woman. And I think about how my father would have reacted if I walked in after practice and my mom was cooking. I said, hey, woman, what's for dinner? My dad would have cuffed me. But I still say there's something to make out of this, especially since Mary is not named and since I've already suggested that she's a type, that when he calls her woman, he's generalizing this experience to all women. And and I didn't make this up. I got this from the commentaries of of Raymond Brown, a Roman Catholic father. He used to be president of the Society of Biblical Literature, and he's a very fine scholar. He did the Anchor Bible Commentary on John years ago. He said, look at all the times in scriptural history where God or scriptural authors refer to women. So, you know, you have the woman, is flesh of my flesh, so Eve at the creation. The woman beguiled me. Eve at the fall. Now we're suggesting that Mary represents woman at the conception of Jesus. She's called woman at the cross, woman behold your son. So a woman is present at the saving death of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, woman why weepest thou? So a woman is present at the resurrection of Jesus. And if you fast forward to Revelation chapter 12, there is this eschatological vision of a woman clothed in the sun with stars as a crown on her head. And so at the second coming, uh, Latter-day Saint interpreters say at the restoration, but it can be both. So a woman's present at the restoration, but certainly at the culmination, the winding up scene of the second coming. At every point in salvation history, you have a woman present. When I teach uh, the infancy narratives of Luke, and we read that beautiful poetic song that Luke attributes to Mary the Magnificat, my soul doth magnify the Lord. She is magnifying the Lord by bringing Christ into the world, literally, by giving birth to the babe of Bethlehem. And I will often remind my students that in the Anglican and some liturgical traditions, they sing the Magnificat or pray the Magnificat in morning prayer every day. The idea being just as Mary literally brought Jesus into the world, how do we as believers bring Jesus into the world each day through our examples, through our work, through our love, etc.? By generalizing the experience of the mother of Jesus in John chapter 2, to reach out to all women, and by extension to all disciples. I don't think it's gender-bound. I think that's a pretty powerful way of approaching it. The mother of Jesus, as a literary character, appears at the beginning of the book, at the winning of Cana, and at the end of the book, at the death on the cross. This is a scene that everybody thought they knew was going on, (laughs) and you kind of shook it up. So what, what do we learn is as Mary stands by the foot of the cross. So you have the mother of Jesus at the foot of the cross and the figure of the beloved disciple. And then as we know, one of the last words of Jesus is he said, woman, behold thy son. And then he speaks to his disciple and says, behold thy mother. And the surface interpretation, which may be historically accurate, that he was concerned about his mother's well-being, and so he wanted his friend to take care of his mother, that we have the, the disciple taking over the mother of Jesus, her care. 
it actually has some long-term problems since we know that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters, one of whom became a church leader who wrote a whole book about taking care of widows. So the fact that James was not there to take care of his mother is kind of problematic. That's actually a clue to you, though. Yeah, it, it should be more a clue. Is I mean, going the on. way people try to get out of that is say, well, James is up in Galilee, and so maybe the beloved disciple had a home in Jerusalem, and so maybe it's just short-term care. But once again, people don't ever get that far to even start questioning that. But as types, you know, we always think about the relationship of the beloved disciple to the mother of Jesus. So the beloved disciple is now being adopted by the mother of Jesus. And in fact, Roman Catholic interpretation, mother of Jesus represents the church. And then, you know, we are, as the believers, if we were Catholic, we are taking the church into our care, you know. So they, they often will take that route of interpretation. But I, you know, always, I always tell my students, the answer is always Jesus. So the interpretation should be Jesus-focused. Up to this point, the beloved disciple is a student and apprentice of Jesus. And that's what the word mathetes means. He's also portrayed as a beloved disciple. And since love and friend have the same root in Greek as in many languages, he's a friend of Jesus. But when the mother of Jesus becomes the mother of the beloved disciple, I think the critical point is, how does that change the relationship of the beloved disciple to Jesus? No longer just a student or an apprentice, not even just a friend, but now part of the family of Christ. And it happens at the cross, and that's what's significant. This is the salvific apogee of this text. At the moment of Jesus' death, we all become part of his family. To reference the Book of Mormon, the end of King Benjamin's speech, Messiah chapter 5, he talks about how we have become the sons and daughters of Christ. We are begotten children of Christ. We're part of his family. So that's, uh, you know, just two or three more steps into this interpretive drilling down of the scene. But like I said, so often, if we think we know the interpretation, oh, beloved disciples taking care of Mary. Jesus is just worried about where she's going to stay that night and who's going to give her dinner. We don't bother to keep thinking. Let's talk about two more women. You have used that big word, eschatology. Did I say it right? (laughs) Eschatology. Eschatology Mm -hmm. several times. What is realized eschatology? Okay, well, let me define eschatology and talk about how it's usually used, what we call future eschatology. Eschatology literally means the study of end things. And in Christian eschatology, it has to do with the return of Jesus, judgment, resurrection, glorification of the saints. So, second coming and beyond. And in Mark and Matthew, and usually in Luke, it is future eschatology. It's talking about things that are in the future. Occasionally in Luke, and often in John, eschatology is what we call realized eschatology. The blessing of Jesus' saving and exalting work, those blessings can be realized by his believers, his followers, right now. They don't need to wait till the end. In fact, uh, a great example of this, and I'm paraphrasing, so I may not get the wording quite right, but after the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, there's this long discourse of Jesus to his Jewish opponents. It's usually called the Discourse on the Divine Son. And in fact, if you don't mind, I will just look it up to make sure I get this right, because the wording is quite quite important. So in John chapter 5, he is talking... And he says, this is verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, present tense, has everlasting life right now, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Is past is present perfect, which means a past action with continuing present action. 
when we talk about our, you know, seminary or Sunday school definition of eternal life, it's about having the kind of life God and Christ have in their presence with their families in the celestial kingdom. It's all future. But that verse I just read says they have everlasting life right now. Now, John occasionally will have future eschatology. In fact, in that same chapter, in verse 29, he talks about the resurrection. And they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done good unto the resurrection of damnation. That's future eschatology. But that other kind is more common. And so the idea is that when we come unto Christ, we have a new fullness of life. In fact, he says in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life in that more abundantly. We can experience so many of the blessings of the atonement and lay hold onto the promises of our future exaltation now. And, And the reason I bring that up in the context of the Martha, Lazarus, and Mary story in John 11 is because the raising of Lazarus is almost always seen as a miraculous sign of Jesus's power over death, that he can raise the dead, and that is an anticipation of first his own resurrection, his conquest of personal death, and then his conquest of death for all of us. And yet, there is an interesting and awkward verse in Martha's dialogue with Jesus. So, Jesus is kind of dillied around for a few days when he hears that Lazarus is sick and doesn't get there in time, and so he's died. And when he arrives, Martha runs out to meet him and says, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother would not have died. But then she gives her, her confession of faith. I know that even now, whatever that will ask of God, he will give it to you. And Jesus says, your brother's going to rise again. And she says, I know, he'll rise in the resurrection. Future eschatology. I actually like to call John 11, and this is really resting the text. It's an intertextuality that doesn't exist. But in, in Luke 10, the famous scene of Mary at the feet of Jesus, where Martha, you know, is kind of rebuked for being cumbered about with much serving. I like to often say John 11 is Martha's revenge because it's clear when she was making dinner, she was listening to Jesus because she knows all about the resurrection. I know he'll rise in the resurrection. I know. So Jesus says unto her, thy brother shall rise again. And Martha says, I know he's going to rise in the resurrection of the last day. And then verse 25, a very famous passage. Jesus says unto her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Still sounds future eschatology. And we quote that at funerals, and we quote that at Easter time, and it's the hope we have in the resurrection. But then he has a verse that we usually don't quote because it's awkward. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now, Lazarus had believed in Jesus, and he's dead. My parents loved the Savior, and they're dead. You and I love Jesus, and there's a 95% chance we're going to die. I'm holding out for the rapture here in case he comes well. But but the point is, it's got to be about something else. How can you never die? It's because you already have Johannine eternal life, which is not exaltation in the celestial kingdom. It is the fullness of life right now. You know, physical death is almost inconsequential. In which case, the raising of Lazarus, as you turn the page towards the end of John chapter 11, is not just limited to raising Lazarus from physical death. It is using Lazarus as a type of all people when they hear and respond to the voice of Jesus, right? Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes out. And here, Book of Mormon theology actually helped me interpret this because the Book of Mormon so well defines what spiritual death is. Spiritual death is not the annihilation of the spirit. Death is just a working definition of death in the Book of Mormon is separation. So physical death is separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is our separation from God. And the reality is every woman and man in the Gospel of John is spiritually dead until Jesus comes into their life and says, come and see. 
And so Lazarus' being raised from the dead is realized eschatology because it's being raised from spiritual death, in which case our mute passive figure of Lazarus represents every single one of us who is dead until Jesus comes into our life. Despite our rhetoric, I think most of us are more concerned with realized eschatology (laughs) than future eschatology, just because... That's the human part of us. We want joy now on well, earth. I think of that passage in the Revelations to Joseph Smith and the Doctrine and Covenants, you know, that you will have peace in this life and eternal life in the life to come. You know, this isn't the Middle Ages where we're just trying to placate a bunch of serfs saying your life is hell, but, you know, if you do what the church says, then you'll be saved in the next. We all want the gospel to be good news in our life now. We want to make a difference now. We want that peace of conscience that comes through forgiveness, but we want the joy that comes in the message of the gospel and that spirit-filled life now. I like the message out of Mary's grief. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so we mentioned that Martha, you know, came running out to meet Jesus and said, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother would not have died. Very next column, when Jesus finally comes into Bethany, Mary comes out of the house, sees him, falls on his feet, and says the exact same thing, Lord, if thou hadst been here, My brother would not have died. And immediately is reduced to wailing. I mean, the word in Greek actually suggests she is inconsolable with grief. And Jesus does not respond to her grief as he did to Martha's testimony by teaching realized eschatology or future eschatology. He doesn't teach anything. That famously shortest verse of scripture, Jesus wept. And so what we see here is Jesus being the prime example of mourning with those who mourn. I started using the different ways that Jesus responds to Martha and Mary's grief shortly after the passing of my father. When my mother, who was a faithful woman, had such a hard time with his death, and I stood by her at his viewing as person after person came through with these platitudes. And we all know how platitudes work. You're supposedly comforting the person, but really you're making yourself feel less socially awkward. Oh, Marilyn, Dennis is in a better place. And I remember my mother, this refined, lovely lady, just losing it. In fact, it was two months after dad's death. Their anniversary fell on Father's Day. And I called my mom that morning. I said, Mom, oh, I'm missing Dad. It's Father's Day. She goes, I know. It's my anniversary. And she said, let me tell you what happened at church. She said, some happy Mormon lady, and I guess it's good we're all Latter-day Saints now because we're all absolved of the dumb things we did as Mormons. But anyway, this happy happy Mormon lady came bouncing into church and said, Marilyn, happy anniversary. I bet Dennis is just having a great time on the other side of the veil. And once again, my mother resorted to her Southern Utah. Hell of a lot of good that does me. I'm here alone. And it it just dawned on me that we're so quick to testify and say it's okay and you'll see them again. And that's not the example of Jesus. When someone mourned, Jesus wept with them, even though he full well knew he's going to turn the page and raise Lazarus within verses, right? (laughs) But he took the time to weep with Mary. And what I'll often say is I'm speaking or teaching this passage is, yeah, we're not Jesus, and we can't know perfectly how to respond to each person in her grief as Jesus did, but we have the Holy Ghost, and we can use some good sense. So if someone else, as you're comforting them at the viewing, or when you're visiting someone after death, says, oh, I'm so grateful for the gospel, and I'm so glad we're an eternal family, yeah, jump in and testify you believe that too. But if you go to comfort someone, and she is weeping, you throw your arms around that person and say, I'm so sorry. This is a hard thing. Yeah. 
you know, you said earlier on in our discussion today, you know, the New Testament seems so distant. Well, these characters and these scenes, these dramatic episodes, make it accessible. And we see people wrestling with hard things and how Jesus provides the way out of them. Eric, that's probably one of the most powerful messages of discipleship that you brought to our attention in the book. So I appreciate that. Just briefly, I'd like to discuss the Last Supper. First of all, this is the first I heard that this was not the boys' night out. (laughs) Do you want to explain your position on this issue? Because I'm pretty sure Leonardo da Vinci just drew men (laughs) in his picture. Well, I would refer you again to my friend Julie Smith and her forthcoming commentary in the Gospel of Mark. Because she actually, when she talks about the Last Supper, she has a painting she found. I'm sorry I can't cite it for you, but it's a wonderful painting of the Last Supper. as this big gathering of men, women, children. I think there's even a dog in there. And and we forget that the Last Supper is a holiday meal. You know, when you have your Christmas Eve supper, you don't shoo all the women who made the meal out of the room and all the kids out of the room. I mean, this is celebrated with families. So It's a Passover bill. Right. Now, that said, the Gospel of John does not portray the Last Supper as a Passover meal. There is this continuity between the synoptics and John because for John, Passover begins with nightfall on the day Jesus dies. So the the primary image for John is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so at the very moment the Paschal lambs are being slaughtered in the temple, Jesus is on the cross dying. So the Passover for John began with the setting of the sun. So it's not just the weekly Sabbath, it's probably a festal Sabbath that's beginning. That said, the Last Supper is simply Jesus' last time of being with his friends and their families, presumably. So whereas a couple of the Synoptic Gospels, I think Mark and Matthew, do make it seem like it's the apostles, remember that the Gospel of John, and I say this in the introduction, the Gospel of John uses the word apostle only once in Greek in such a non-technical fashion. It doesn't even appear in our translation. The English word apostle never appears in the fourth gospel. This non-technical usage is in the in the the resurrection appearance of Jesus in John 20 to the 11. He says, he that is sent is not greater than he who sent him. Okay, and so you've got this very non-technical use. It's just disciples. Now, almost assuredly, the 12 would have been there. We know Peter's there. We know that Thomas and Philip are there. We know that Judas Iscariot is there partway through it, and his beloved disciple, if he happens to be the Apostle John. But you've got this Last Supper scene. But remember that one of the reasons I think that John doesn't focus on apostles as much is he wants to make sure we realize discipleship is for everyone. It's not just limited to those special witnesses. In fact, these farewell discourses in chapters 14, 15, and 16, and then the beautiful high priestly intercessory prayer in chapter 17, they are written to disciples so broadly that as you're reading them, it sounds like Jesus is talking to you. And that's the point. The disciples gathered for a last meal with Jesus represent all of us as we gather weekly to celebrate the Last Supper together. Let's circle back to the beloved disciple. He is present at very critical parts of the story. What does his presence tell us about discipleship in those scenes? Okay, for the benefit of the listeners who haven't looked at the text this way before, he appears at the Last Supper, reclining in the the embrace or the bosom of the Savior. He appears at the foot of the cross. He runs to the empty tomb with Peter in chapter 20, 
and then he is one of the seven disciples at the resurrection appearance at the Sea of Galilee. So four times he's explicitly mentioned. We presume he is the other disciple following with Peter after Jesus is arrested, who gets Peter into the high priest's house for the denial scene, basically. Some scholars suggest, and I tend to agree with this, that he is the unnamed figure with Andrew all the way back in chapter 1. So he had been a follower of the prophet John before John said, the Lamb of God, go follow him. And since so much of this text reads like it is in a personal account, we can suggest that the beloved disciple is following Jesus throughout his ministry. He was there at the Bread of Life discourse. He was there at these different scenes. And so the beloved disciple ends up being what we call the source of this text, whether it's a written source or an oral source. He's the one who passed these stories on. But the reason why I think it's significant A, that he's not named, B, that he has the title Beloved, and C, that he is explicitly mentioned at crucial moments, is because I think the intent is for us to read ourselves in wherever he's present. So it's a disciple, not a member of the Twelve. So we're not talking about specially ordained and selected witnesses. We're talking about anyone who chooses to follow Jesus, learn from him, and become like him. He's beloved. Jesus loves him. He loves us. But the scenes where he appears, we've already talked about this last supper scene that I've related to our celebrating the sacrament together. We recline in the arms of the Savior's love as we partake of the sacrament and receive other priesthood ordinances. So that's, that's the first scene. And by the way, I didn't know this till I was doing the research for this book. All the time I've read this before, it's the first time this jumped out to me in a commentary. When it says reclining in the bosom of Jesus, the Greek word used there, eston kolpon, is the same word that's used in the Logos hymn in John chapter 1, that the word was in the bosom of the Father. So as the word, Jesus, is in the love of the Father, so we are in the love of Jesus. Then he stands at the foot of the cross that we all can obtain a testimony that Jesus died for us. He runs with hope to the empty tomb. We all have hope in the resurrection. And then at the end, his testimony is validated. When the, the final editor says, we know his testimony is true. In fact, I, that's how I title the last section of the last chapter of my book. We know our testimony is true. And so what I'm suggesting here is, although the characters in John present so many different ways to approach Jesus, come to a knowledge of him, you can be an intellectual like Nicodemus, you can be an outsider like the woman at the well, you can be a woman like the mother of Jesus or Mary, you can be followers of Jesus who struggle with hard sayings like those disciples at the Bread of Life discourse in John 6. Yeah, in a time when the world generally and our church in particular are you know struggling with diversity and multiculturalism, there is this unifying message that what's really important about discipleship is a loving, living relationship with Jesus, a testimony that he died for us, hope in his resurrection, and then assurance that the witness we have of him is true. I love that. So you mentioned one of the interpretations is that the beloved disciple represents all Christians. If that's so, what is John's message from the disciple's testimony? Well, you know, it's interesting. The, like I said, the, the last time he's mentioned is when the editor says, we know his testimony is true. You've had this interesting interchange, right? Peter's just had his personal priesthood interview, for lack of a better term, with, with Jesus, where he gets a chance to three times say he loves Jesus and he will feed his sheep, almost compensating for the threefold denial. 
And then Jesus talks about Peter's particular future, right? So Peter's name, Peter's a, a historical figure who's so clearly drawn, it's hard to associate ourselves with him. He's, he's Peter. And his being you know, taken to martyrdom, which seems to be alluded to uh, in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 21, that seems specific to him. And then Peter turns and sees the disciple whom Jesus loves following. I actually mentioned this is one of the times I bring Greek into the discussion that the Greek verb akolotheo to follow is used as a technical term for to be a disciple. You follow him. And it's even stressed the disciple who leaned upon Jesus's breast at the supper. He says, what is this man going to do? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. If I say he's going to live till I come again, and we all get wrapped up and bogged down in translation discussions, or whether, you know, he's going to die, that's not the issue. What's the issue is his testimony is true. Michael Austin, when he was doing the foreword and an endorsement for my book, he said, you know, one of the things I got out of reading this was none of us knows enough about the experiences of someone else to judge his or her journey. And that's exactly what Jesus says to Peter. Don't worry about the beloved disciple. His testimony is true, and I will work out his life and his mission with him. And so that's, I think, the final message. We may all come to Christ different ways. I mean, we know that in the end is the straight and narrow gate. We understand baptism. We understand priesthood ordinances. I'm not talking about coming to Christ ultimately. I'm talking about coming to get a testimony that Jesus is the Son of God and the choice to be a disciple and to follow him. That other stuff comes naturally as part of the restored gospel. But I'm saying in terms of how we come to a testimony of Christ, that may be different for every one of us. It's not my business to judge your testimony, yours to judge mine. What matters are those sine qua knowns that the beloved disciple gives us. We rest in the arms of the Savior's love. We have a testimony of his death. We have hope in his resurrection. And we have confidence that each person's testimony can be true. Thank you so much, Eric, for visiting with us today. You are a masterful storyteller, and you have given us lots of tools today. I just want to mention briefly to our listeners who may not have caught it, you gave a phenomenal devotional presentation at BYU, August 7, 2018. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that a little bit? I received a letter in the late spring asking me if I'd be willing to give a BYU devotional. Not every faculty member gets to give a devotional. It's usually a -a once-in-a-career thing. The fact that I got the letter so late actually makes me suspect whoever was for that day fell through. So I was probably a fill-in, but whatever. I was pleased to do it, and I initially thought, well, I'm going to talk about what I talk about, Jesus. This is a chance for me to talk about Jesus and John. And so what I always focus on in my writing and my teaching and what I love is what I thought I would do. Now, as it happened about the time I got this letter, I was teaching John 6 to my Christ in the Everlasting Gospel class. And this is after the Bread of Life discourse where the Jewish leaders reject Jesus and his call that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And then there's that one troublesome little line where it said, many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And they no more followed with him. And I've been in the habit the last few years when I get to that passage, after we use scripture as a window, a double window into the original events and then what it meant to the original readers, I will ask my students to hold a mirror up to themselves and say, what are hard sayings to you that sometimes make it hard for you to follow, to stay in the church? And increasingly, my students would bring up life experiences more than they would, you know, truth claims or historical issues. They would say, you know what? 
my role as a woman in the church, it's hard for me. Or I'd have not even minority students. Sometimes they'd be, you know, Caucasians who'd say, I am still troubled with the way we treated blacks and the whole black and the priesthood issue. And increasingly, students who are now more open about this would say, I really struggle with gender and sexuality issues. And in fact, that day, I also had a student who tried to express herself, and she did it really awkwardly. And and she'd been awkward throughout the semester, and one of her fellow students shut her down. And this student emailed me that same night and explained she had had a mental illness. And so suddenly my mind is swirling with people struggling with gender and sexuality and race and mental health. And I could not escape the fact that what I felt the Spirit wanted me to talk about in that devotional was hard sayings. And not to provide answers. In fact, I I cite the Martha, Lazarus, and Mary story in the devotional that I had to learn not to be too quick on the draw with explanations for these situations, but I needed to sit with and sometimes weep with people as they struggled with these issues. And so slowly this idea began to unfold in my mind that I had to talk about these hard sayings in front of BYU. I was scared to death. I kept trying to put it off. I actually went on choir tour. I'm in the Tabernacle Choir, and we were in the West Coast. And while we were there, um, during one of our sound checks, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus was invited to sing with us. And I had a good friend whom I know is gay, and he, but he is a covenant keeper and has chosen to be celibate. And after we had had this sound check where we were all patting ourselves on the back for being so open and loving to these people, I saw my friend Alex at dinner sitting by himself, and the Spirit told me to go sit with him. And he wept with me, and he said, you know, you're all being so open to these outsiders, and I'm your brother, and I feel like I'm still under a rock. I had all these things come to my mind. wrote this devotional, sent it in, didn't hear anything about not saying anything. And on August 7th, I stood up, and I actually took President Ballard as my example, he had given a devotional called Questions and Answers, where he talked about lots of things, but one of the things he mentioned is how we needed to listen and better understand our LGBT sisters and brothers. And I stood up and shared some stories and said some things I guess you don't always hear, at least all in one talk. It was, I hope, well-received. It was well-received. It resonated with a lot of people. Thank you for your time today. We will put a link to that devotional broadcast along with a transcript in our show notes so you can check that out yeah the pdfs on BYU speeches i hope you'll do the a video link i often joke with people that sermons are better preached than read i um have a somewhat idiosyncratic preaching style so i think even if people don't agree with my devotional they'll at least find it entertaining thank you for having me thank you art bye be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.